welcome to another episode of the EDS at Union Now podcast. Over the next few weeks, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas will be speaking with faith leaders and community leaders about what it means to be church during this COVID-19 pandemic. In today's episode, Dean Douglas is speaking with Reverend Dan Schneid, the rector at St. Paul's Church in Flint, Michigan. Dan welcomed Dean Douglas to his church and community last October, and you can hear her reflections on that trip uh, from our October 21st podcast titled Reflecting on the Flint Water Crisis. Today, Dean Douglas and Reverend Schneid are discussing COVID-19's impact on a Flint community that has already been on the front lines of a public health emergency through their ongoing lead water crisis. We will hear how Dan's church is responding to the needs of his community and where he's finding hope during this time. As always, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe to EDS at Union Now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Help us spread the word by sharing the show with your friends and family. And with that, here's our conversation with Dean Douglas and Reverend Dan Schneider. Welcome to our Facebook live conversations on what it means to be church or being church in this time of COVID-19. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School uh, at Union in New York City, and I am joined today by Reverend Dan Scheid, who is the rector of St. Paul's Church in Flint, Michigan. Dan, thank you so very much for joining us in this conversation. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, well, we'll jump right in, Dan, because, of course, there are many questions facing us in this sort of new reality that we find ourselves in as church and as faith leaders. One of the things that COVID-19, this COVID-19 crisis has revealed more than ever are the often ignored ongoing, the often ignored ongoing crisis of endemic injustice in this country and gross inequality. In so many ways, your city of Flint is living proof of that as we have seen in the contaminated water crisis, which uh, is ongoing uh, for the residents of Flint. So I want to begin this conversation this afternoon by asking you from your place in Flint, Michigan, what does it mean to be church in this time of COVID-19? Well, it it means to be a little bit confused, actually. Um, In time of crisis, the church flings, opens its doors, gathers people together. Um, to to get through whatever the issue is, this is a different kind of crisis. We are we're we're closed our doors and we're staying away. So we're finding new ways to try to be church, to be you know the body of Christ assembled both in in worship in forums 
much like you and I are in right now, um, but also the real challenges to be the people of God in the community. That's right. um, because again, so much of what the church does when it's in the community dealing with issues of justice and compassion uh, is face-to-face, hand-to-hand. And we're not able to do that in the way that we're familiar with. So um, uh, confusion, uh, a bit of anxiety, um, but some excitement and hope too. Um, is this leading us? Is this is this tragedy, this crisis, leading us uh, into new ways? Not that not that certainly uh, the spirit is is prompting this uh, crisis for us to act differently. But perhaps um, one of the roles of the church is to listen uh, to how the Holy Spirit may be leading us um, to be the church in ways that we're unaccustomed to. Yeah, and I'm. Uh reminded as you say that Dan that being church and being the body of Christ as you've just articulated so well is about so much more than worship and that worshiping experience and that how in so many ways this COVID crisis is reminding us of the different aspects of what it means indeed to be the body of Christ in the world and so I want to sort of dig down a little bit into that uh, as you face this crisis in Flint, Michigan, because the COVID crisis, it seems to me, is only added to what has already been for many in your community a life-threatening situation given the respiratory and other conditions that were associated with and are associated with lead poisoning. One of the unrelenting yet forgotten problems uh, in your community is being able to get bottled water uh, and to because so many people are still suffering uh, from uh, lead poisoning and water that they can't drink. The church, uh, as I recall from when we visited there a few months ago, was uh, one of the main places where people could indeed pick up water. And you had many volunteers that were handing out water as well as food. Yet yesterday, I read an article where a gentleman there, 70-year-old gentleman who was trying to get water for he and his 90-year-old father, uh, stated that the lines were long uh, and that there was no water in some places to be had. Uh, Can you speak to that? What's going on? And is the church still able to find volunteers? How are people getting uh, water uh, in this community? It's really a challenge right now. Um, I was I was driving around yesterday and went by um, one of the um, public service areas, and there was a line of cars uh, two blocks long and going around a corner of people um, in their cars waiting to pick up water and food from just one particular site uh, among several in Flint. It really is a challenge, um, not only a material challenge, you know, having enough actual uh, water and food to pass out, um, but also the the volunteer challenge, because again, you you know, you, you have to 
limit and train and make sure the people who are volunteering are safe to be there, are practicing whatever safe practices are recommended. So it limits the volunteer pool significantly. You know, um, people are asked to do, you know, a lot more um, with a lot fewer resources, both material and human. Um, and this certainly has affected uh, what we do at, at St. Paul's. Our primary um, community-based ministry is our every Tuesday lunch. Right. Um, I remember that. The, the pastoral directive that we are under from, from our bishop um, says that we may hand out bagged lunches safely from our parking lot, but we may not gather inside the church building inside our, our, our health department licensed kitchen <laughs> to make and assemble these lunches. So we, we can't, we can't make the lunches in order to hand them out. Um, we, uh, a week ago, Tuesday, we handed out bagged lunches. Um, and this was right before the pastoral directive came down. So we said to people, come back next week. We'll be here. Well, that Tuesday afternoon, the pastoral directive came down uh, that, that basically closed the building for good uh, for this crisis, including our kitchen, including parish volunteers. So this past Tuesday, we had no bagged lunches to hand out. Uh, I put a sign on the door. Uh, but it seemed to me uh, an insufficient uh, response. Uh, Tuesday of this week, you'll recall, uh, was the feast, the 40th anniversary of the assassination of Oscar Romero, Oscar. Uh, Romero's martyrdom. And it, it, it just pulled. And the, the, the daily office gospel uh, for, for Tuesday was Jesus feeding the 4,000. Hmm. So here you have people, you know, in the gospel who are hungry, who are weary, um, and, and they're able to be fed. Here you have a feast day of, of one of the giants of the church uh, in terms of social justice and, and being in solidarity with the poor. Uh, and here was St. Paul's Church, um, not able to do that. So I went to the church. Uh, I stood outside. And as people came, I, I, I greeted them, uh, told them what the new news was, uh, apologized that I had nothing for them um, to a person. Um, there was no, no anger, no bitterness, anything directed. I mean, people seem to understand. But it just points out that those who are the most vulnerable um, really pay the, the, the heaviest and perhaps the, the leading edge of the heavy price of this. No, that's exactly right. That uh, those who were the poor, the most vulnerable, uh, the most needy, the most uh, uh, marginalized are indeed, uh, once again, paying the heaviest price. And these are the people to whom the church is called to serve. And we find it uh, difficult in this time to figure out how to do that, but we have to find a way to do that. I'm also reminded as you speak about the most vulnerable in your community, as you took us around a few months ago and uh, residents so graciously spoke with us and uh, led us into their homes and uh, 
were hospitable and showed us the warmest of hospitality. But everywhere we went, uh, they spoke of some version of this downsizing in the city in which certain populations of people, the poor, the most vulnerable, those who have been greatly impacted by the water crisis, uh, were considered expendable. And in fact, one woman used the phrase, and it was reiterated by another, uh, that they were told by some official in the city that they were useless eaters. I will never forget that phrase, uh, that they were useless eaters in terms of the city's resources. So my question is, how do we assure and how are in this time of crisis that those who in the community and a community like Flint have been seen as useless eaters and expendable? How do we assure that they now don't become disposable? And this becomes a, a way to downsize the city. Oh, that is that is such a challenging question um, that I don't have a precise answer for or, or even a vague answer for. You know, so much of the way that social justice work gets done is through community organizing, is through people gathering, people raising a collective voice. Um, it's much harder to do these days. You know, you can't gather en masse outside of City Hall or anywhere else and raise your voice and protest. A church can't be um, a gathering place, a facilitating place for, for such meetings and such work of justice. Um, so I, I think in large part, it's things that we're doing right now, what you and I are doing now, how do we continue to raise these voices using, using different platforms, mm -hmm. right? You know, if I raise this issue in a sermon on Sunday, you know, a certain set of people will hear it. If that's a Sunday, I record a sermon and I, and I share it online, a few more people will hear it. Um, you know, now everything is being done in, in the medium that you and I are doing right now. So how are we able to speak out um, to the issues that you address? effectively um, with what seems to be a pretty wide and perhaps unlimited audience. That may be a real opportunity for us um, to, to advocate for justice, to point out uh, the steep injustices that you speak about. Because I do worry about um, the poor people in this city, um, not, only their, not only their health, um, but especially, even more so, their economic well-being. Right. It was so tenuous leading up to this. So many of Flint's poor simply were not participating in or benefiting from um, any slight uptick in, in the downtown economy, the gentrifying economy. You know, this, uh, this COVID-19 crisis is knocking so many out of work um, that I... I wonder how it's going to be for those who are already finding it difficult to find work um, to be able to do that when so many people who were working, um, you know, uh, productively and lucratively find themselves uh, with with less work or none at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it reminds me, yes, the, those who were already, uh, their employment was already fragile and it has now become even more fragile. They are the first to be laid off uh, 
in, one, uh, in good times. Uh, and now they will certainly be amongst the last to be hired uh, as we go through these bad economic times due to this crisis. I also think of uh, the children uh, uh, in your community. And I want to get to that in a minute. Uh, but as I think of the poor, I recall uh, as well that there were people who were paying for water that they couldn't drink uh, and that the water bills in Flint were already exorbitant and they became even more so. So that when they couldn't pay for water, children were being taken out of their homes as the water was being turned off. This isn't a time when you can't get water for water to be turned off. I heard yesterday your mayor uh, say, along with Dr. Reynolds, that they were going to restore water to 140 residents. Uh, is this, can you speak to that? Is this really uh, getting at the problem? Because uh, it seemed to me that there were a whole lot more than 140 residents whose water had been turned off. Yeah, more than that. I think that's a, a, a target. Um, I was just talking with Dr. Reynolds, uh, uh, texting with him before uh, before you and I met, um, and he reported to me that thus far 28 have been reconnected, and they're scheduled for another eight per day, um, mm -hmm. with all of the precautions, making sure that that you know that inside faucet is able to have a, a faucet filter put on, right? Making sure that the workers who are outside the homes and inside the homes have the proper uh, protective gear and such on. Um, it really is um, <laughs> a drop in the bucket uh, or, or, you know, perhaps a band-aid to use another, uh, another metaphor. People need running water in their homes in order to be able to, to wash their hands the 20 seconds uh, as we're instructed to do. There still is, you know, grave mistrust among uh, the most vulnerable in the city about the water um, that's coming into their homes. Is it even safe to wash your hands with? I mean, that would be a, a concern that someone might have, let alone drink with it or brush your teeth, etc. Um, another uh, concern that I have is that uh, Flint has the highest water rates in the country right. of a town our size. I wonder you know, people who who already who whose median household income is maybe twenty seven thousand dollars a year. So that means half the households in Flint live on less than twenty seven thousand dollars a year. Whether people have an opinion on their water quality or not is almost an aside. Water is unaffordable for so many. So will these water reconnects, which may have a benefit, will that cause you know a further a further debt spiral? Um, um, a further issue of people not being able uh, to, to pay, shut off somewhere down the road once the COVID crisis is done. Another thing that I that I worry about is is actually increased water consumption. As people are staying in their homes, yeah. as children are not in school, people are using presumably more tap water in their homes to wash their hands every, you know, every time they have to wash them. I wonder if you know, if people's water bills um, are going to go up simply because they're using more water. And if so, um, how will the poorest in our city pay for that? Um, it's complicated. That's right. And, and especially, as you said, one thing that was also very clear and people rightly uh, did not trust 
the water. <laughs> Again, the water remained contaminated. Uh, one more little issue before I add, uh, get to some more uh, specific issues about the children, that the other thing that we became very aware of while visiting Flint uh, was a story that was not widely reported nationally, and that was the story of Legionnaire's disease, uh, and how, which is a respiratory uh, disease, and how many people had suffered from that, and there were fatalities from that due to bacteria in the water uh, uh, and in the water uh, pipes, etc. So now I wonder, uh, on top of that, and of course, uh, the fear that Legionnaire's disease uh you have an uptick in that as the weather gets warmer. Now we place on top of that COVID and it's a respiratory uh, disease as well. Uh, and so again, uh, the most vulnerable, you have people in the poor in Flint who are already suffering uh, because of water and the respiratory conditions related to that. What's, what's going on in the health community and in the medical uh, community to try to offset uh, what can become an even larger crisis in Flint? Sure. Well, they're, um, they're, they're preparing to become swamped. As I was thinking about our, our conversation, um, uh, I, if you'll pardon the comparison, I felt a little bit like John the Baptist to your Jesus. Um, <laughs> I, I, I should be coming to you. Jesus is insulted. <laughs> I, I should be coming to you, but you come to me because where, where your seminary is, you know, New York is the, is the, the global epicenter right That's now. Right. I, I read uh, the New York Times every day and and, and how the hospitals are are just crushed with this. Um, in Flint, hospitals aren't crushed with this yet. Just just south of us in Detroit, they are. Uh, the two largest health systems in Detroit are, are at and beyond capacity. That's where most of the cases of COVID are um, in the state of Michigan, are the city of Detroit proper, uh, and in Wayne County where Detroit is, and a couple of surrounding counties. Um, Flint, thus far, we have uh, 63 cases in Genesee County, where Flint is, and two fatalities thus far. So, I mean, far lower numbers than what you're seeing in New York City, um, but proportionally right. um, for our size, um, devastating. So, you know, I know that that you know, all of the, the hospitals, the healthcare um, institutions are ramping up for this. Uh, one of my parishioners uh, is a, as a nursing student, um, but she also works as a CNA, a certified nurse's assistant uh, in another hospital. Um, and you, you just, you, you, you hear the stories, um, you know, the reports uh, of, of nurses who are scrambling to have enough, you know, um, personal protective equipment, masks, all of those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, thus far, we're not seeing that kind of, of critical surge, but, but we expect it certainly relative to our population. And, and one thing that, that hasn't been answered, you know, people who had Legionnaire's disease and survived, um, does that make them a bit more compromised? Did that, right. did that cause any kind of permanent damage um, that may be underlying that you wouldn't notice but might make one more susceptible? I don't know the answer to that, um, but certainly you're right. Uh, Legionella disease 
um, was vastly underreported. Um, lead itself did not cause any direct fatalities in Flint. Mm -hmm. The long-term effects, even the short-term effects are being seen. The long-term effects remain to be seen. What did kill people uh, was Legionella. Um, and that being a respiratory disease, um, I really do wonder about that. So, you know, it seems like from a from a systems standpoint, um, folk are preparing as well as they can, hospitals and other health centers. Um, and we'll see. Yeah. Again, what we're talking about here is sort of where we started uh, in a global way in this conversation. And this is the realities of poverty uh, coming together with the realities of racism, et cetera, that has impacted the most vulnerable uh, in the community in such a way that makes this COVID-19 virus uh, even more uh, threatening to those whose lives are already threatened. Let's speak of a subset of that population for a moment uh, before we come to close, and that's the children. Mm -hmm. And Again, uh, being with you in Flint, uh, they're just images that I will never uh, forget and conversations that will always linger with me. And one, of course, was a conversation with parents who uh, were trying to make sure their children weren't taken from them because of water bills they could not pay. The other conversation was the difficulties that children were having in school, the learning difficulties. One of the short-term, long-term effects of uh, the lead poisoning. And then the image that won't leave me is you drove us around and I remember saying, where are the schools? Uh, uh, and so many schools had already been shuttered. And now I think of these children who already uh, were traveling distances to get to school, who were already being underserved educationally, who were already having education, learning difficulties by no fault of their own. And now schools are closed. These very children don't have access to online learning. Uh, and so they are be being left further and further and further behind. How are people responding or are to this crisis? Yeah, that's really complicated as well, isn't it? I mean, even just going from, from nutrition, um, right. the vast majority of Flint school children eat at school. Um, you know, uh, free and reduced lunch. I mean, two, maybe three meals a day. Sometimes they may take home a backpack of food over the weekend, right? Uh, with schools being closed, that whole nutritional avenue is cut off. Now, there are, are um, resources in place and, and, and centers in place around city trying to address the nutritional needs of students who aren't in school. Um, but that's but that's hard if you don't have transportation. Um, city buses um, are at last I heard still running, um, but but you know that may change as you know as as bus drivers become more compromised. Um, but the whole educational um, piece that you bring up, um, you know, if you don't have. Um, 
uh, internet in home, if you don't have access to a library that has internet because that's closed, if you already have, um, you know, sort of previous environmental-based uh, learning challenges exacerbated by by lead poisoning, um, and, and that you know, maybe speaks to what you spoke about earlier in terms of expendable people in Flint and some depopulating. Um, you know, what will that mean? What will this do, uh, you know, children who, whose, you know, parent or parents at home may really struggle to try to, to homeschool them, you know, in the, in the stopgap way that parents are, are doing. We already know that in Flint so often, even the simple fact of summer vacation mm -hmm. um, causes some of the most vulnerable kids to lose some of what they learned that previous school year. Um, will this be another instance of that where the, the kids who are most vulnerable will fall farther behind? Um, you know, thus far, I've not seen any public kind of conversation around that specifically. Um, we seem to be a little bit more understandably in kind of a triage right now. Yeah. You know, kids, you know, kids need to eat. Yes, they need to learn, but but by God, they need to eat and, and, and drink. Right. So we need to solve that problem. Um, I've not seen anything about the, the longer term ramifications of, of schools being closed, um, you know, and, conceivably, and, conceivably, you know, through the end of this school year, um, right. you know, which is really only the end of May, the first of June. Um, That's right. And perhaps, you know, these are the issues that the church and faith communities need to attend to in the long run so that uh, as we are in this state of crisis and triaging, uh, as you rightly say, but there are going to be long term impacts uh, that again, uh, will go ignored uh, unless there is a voice raising uh, these concerns, even as our government uh, creates stimulus packages, etc. Uh, they These packages aren't doing anything uh, no. at all for the most vulnerable, and they remain are forgotten. I also think, Dan, as you talked about nutrition, I remember one of the things that Dr. Reynolds in particular, when we spoke with him, uh, really uh, emphasized was the way in which proper nutrition can help not eliminate, but mitigate mm -hmm. uh, some of the lead poisoning. And so again, these very children who were already impacted by lead poisoning and we're seeing it in showing up in some of their abilities to learn, uh, now that everyday meal uh, that would allow for some kind of balanced nutrition uh, is taken away. Way. And so, again, their health concern, their health concerns are just multiplying health concerns for the children and, and certainly for adults, especially the, the folk who we serve at our Tuesday lunch. You remember you met Father Jay Gantz over yes. at St. Andrew's uh, Soup Kitchen three days a week there. He's under the same pastoral directive uh, that I am. The Soup Kitchen is shut down. Um, we were providing, you know, those you know, particular nutritive kind of foods to help not only mitigate the effects of lead poisoning, but just general nutrition um, to help people who, whose 
uh, health is already compromised for another number of other reasons. You know, that is we've had to press pause on that for right now. Um, it's it, it's going it, to it's going to hit uh, the most vulnerable folk the hardest. Um, and, and when we're struggling with that, you know, we could we could hand out you know, prepackaged stuff, which is maybe calories. Um, but is that the right, is that the right solution? Right. Well, as we bring this conversation to a close, I, I want to first again, thank you again for the first of a series of conversations. And you have raised some very important issues uh, for us to attend to. And hopefully, as you suggested earlier, Dan, we find platforms like this to continue to raise these issues. And even as we're in the midst of this crisis, uh, not to allow those who are already forgotten to become disposable and even more uh, a part of a forgotten group of, of human beings, of sacred children of God, because we're talking about every breath is a sacred breath. Uh, and so hopefully uh, the faith community can uh, be strong a voice to continue to lift up those persons to whom we have been called to serve. As we leave this conversation, I want to just ask you then, in the with that in mind, what is the message that you want to leave us with as a faith leader as we mm -hmm. go through this crisis? Yeah, uh, a couple of images come to mind. First is the image of exile, and that perhaps addresses, you know, members of our congregations who are, are separated one from another in face-to-face -face meetings and also separated from our sacred spaces, our buildings. It, you know, it seems now we are in a time of exile, yet being in exile is also a time to be faithful. Mm -hmm. um, I officiated at a at a home wedding a week ago today. It was to have been a much grander affair in a church with the venue and the whole thing. Um, it ended up being just uh, just a handful of people in the, in the the home of the parents of the groom. And I used for the scripture reading, uh, Jeremiah 29, his letter to the exiles saying, you know, marry, take wives, have children, plant gardens, um, bloom where you're planted, in other words. So in this time of exile, I, I think the church is, um, is, is encouraged to keep on living. And to find new ways of being um, when we're we're torn from our sacred space and from our face-to-face -face interpersonal connections. Um, I, I was in a meeting with uh, with our bishop uh, yesterday. He chimed in on our deanery clericus meeting. He said, in some ways, at least for now, we seem to be a bit more connected through mm -hmm. all of these Zoom meetings uh, that that seem to to fall in our laps. So. Uh, Exile, um, being together, knowing that God is faithful in the midst of, of, of heartache, um, I think is an important message for the church to understand, maybe, maybe internally. Um, externally, you know, we're heading, uh, we're heading into that season of, of Holy Week, the Triduum and Easter. Um, and boy, what a, 
what an opportunity we have to sort of rethink not only the liturgies and how we do that from from this space that I'm sitting in, me, myself, and I, um, but more what is, you know, what what is the what's behind the liturgies? You know, what do the words of scripture, what do the the prayers say? What does the actual act of of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how does that speak um, to us as the church um, goes out into the community virtually for the time being, um, but even more so when we're able to go out physically. Um, we're going through kind of a kind of a passion and death right now, in, in, in a sense. Um, God willing, we will rise, um, be able to come out from our tombs uh, and head, uh, head out into the world. Um, will the church be changed? Or will we fall back into uh, what has been comfortable and familiar? Um, I guess it, it, that that may give me some hope that if we don't overthink this, <laughs> um, but but that we not underthink it either. And, and maybe this Holy Week and Easter, this sacred time of, of the Paschal Mystery, uh, can help us maybe uncover some things that, that that we've long forgotten. Thank you. Yeah, my hope is that perhaps after this, the church does have to change and we will grow more and more into being church. Mm. Dan, thank you so very much for this conversation. And more than that, thank you for the work that you are doing uh, in Flint. And I hope that those of you who are listening are inspired and encouraged uh, to in your own communities to find ways to be of service to those that are most vulnerable, even as we move through this and to continue to raise our voices in such a way that when we faced more crises in the future, we will have at least responded to the ongoing crises in our country of endemic injustice and ongoing inequality. Thank you, Dan, and thank you all for joining us today. Oh, Kelly, thank you so much. It's always a joy to talk with you. Better circumstances next time, let's hope. Exactly. Bye. Bye. Bye.